This is AZ Politicast. I'm Steve Goldstein. Democratic congressional candidate Andre Cherney is featured in this episode, and he'll explain why he's running for office again following a successful decade as a CEO. The stakes are higher than perhaps have ever been in my lifetime. I really do feel that democracy is on the line uh, in the United States of America. He'll also talk about what he learned from previous losses to Doug Ducey and Kirsten Cinema. Thanks for reminding me. And I'll analyze what the winning Democrat in the new 1st Congressional District has to be aware of in trying to knock Representative David Schweikert out of Congress. It's a segment we're calling It's Not Personal, It's Politics. AZ Politicast starts now. Andre Cherney can safely be called a prodigy, a wonder boy. He was the youngest presidential speechwriter in U.S. history, working for the Clinton White House. He wrote a highly regarded book about a little-known heroic moment from the World War II period. He co-founded the publication Democracy. He also spent time over the past decade as CEO of a financial tech firm that focused on climate change solutions. Even with that long list of successes, he also lost a couple of elections, one in the general for state treasurer to Doug Ducey and the other in a congressional primary to Kirsten Cinema. There are worse people to lose to, of course, but still, and now Cherney's running for office again, this time in Arizona's first congressional district. Should he win, he would face off with incumbent Republican David Schweikert. So why is someone with Cherney's accomplishments again trying to win an election? That is the first question I asked him. That's the right question. And, and I think the answer is partially with the last part of your question, which is right now. And I think right now, the stakes are higher than perhaps have ever been in my lifetime. I really do feel that democracy is on the line uh, in the United States of America over the next few elections. And having spent the past uh, decade working at the company that I started on climate issues and having worked on these issues in different ways for 25 years, Uh, I really think that the next few years are going to be so impactful on whether or not we are able to confront the climate crisis. And so the questions of are we going to have a vibrant democracy in America? Are we going to have uh, the ability to confront the climate crisis, which is such a clear and present danger for Arizona, but also an enormous economic opportunity if we get it right? Uh, those are really what has driven me to say uh, this is a time to step forward. With some of the things that we saw with January 6th, Charlottesville, how much did that drive you here? All four of my grandparents were concentration camp survivors. Uh, They lost many, many of their family members, um, parents, brothers, sisters, uh, spouses, children um, in in the concentration camps and and, in the Holocaust. Uh, But all four of them survived. And then my parents were both born in a free and democratic country uh, in 1946. And by the time they were growing up as children, that democracy disappeared. Uh, And communists took over and, uh, among many other oppressions, uh, put my grandfather in jail for the crime of being a capitalist. Um, eventually, my, my parents were able to get out and they came to the United States and I was born a couple of years later. And frankly, always believed in 
the importance of democracy, but really took our democracy in the United States for granted. And it was really conversations with my parents who are like a lot of people sit there and, and uh, going about their day and, and watching CNN and the emotions that watching Charlottesville brought up for them, that watching January 6th brought up for them, where they were saying, this feels so familiar, were scary uh, and really were a big part of making me believe that this is a time where we really have to step forward. One of the things that is also fascinating about what you've done in your adult life is this combination of having been involved in politics, but also, as you mentioned, the work you did in the last decade as a CEO, that you were someone who has political background, international background, military background, and a capitalistic background as well. How do you think that readies you for attacks you'd no doubt face in a general election? Yeah, I think first and foremost, it, it hopefully readies me for being an effective member of Congress, uh, bringing a background as somebody who was a CEO for a decade, who built a, a company that provided jobs for thousands of, of people, having served uh, in the military after 9-11, having been a prosecutor uh, in Arizona as an assistant attorney general, gives me the ability to deal with a lot of the challenges that this district and our community uh, needs effective leadership on, and frankly, where I don't feel we are getting that effective leadership. But yes, I also think that uh, it means that the usual kind of uh, scarecrow image of what a Democrat is, it doesn't really work uh, if it's somebody who's built a company and uh, understands how the free enterprise system works, if it's somebody who has uh, worn our country's uniform and, and somebody who has been on the front lines of taking on the drug smuggling and human smuggling rings across our border. Um, all of those in many ways are real issues and it means that we need real solutions. Let's go back to the early 90s when you were with the Clinton administration and then a number of years later, you were um, chair of the Arizona Democratic Party and doing other things, obviously, but just from a political standpoint, now where we stand today, it is certainly the narrative that people in my business have used. And it seems valid that whether because of, of Donald Trump or whether it was building to that and it was under the surface, there is the feeling that politically, at least, this country is more divided than maybe it has been since the Civil War. Could Republicans and Democrats get along as humans, but also get along in terms of being problem solvers. Have you noticed over the past three decades that it is truly as bad as it feels in terms of getting the parties to work together on things to, yes, there's going to be partisanship, but at when it comes down to the end of accomplishing things, they will work together? Have you noticed it's getting that much harder? Look, I think it is definitely harder, and it's for a lot of reasons. I, I think social media uh, allows people to be in their bubbles. Uh, it's not as it was back in the, as you said, 1990s, where everybody would turn on Peter Jennings and Tom Brokaw and Dan Rather, and we were all watching the same uh, news shows and getting the same information. People get information from their respective corners. And, and there's so many incentives to go out there and be as outrageous and as extreme as you can, because it riles up your supporters uh, it perhaps riles up the other side supporters, which 
then means your supporters want to jump in. And, and that's how a lot of people raise their money for their campaigns and money itself uh, because of the rising influence of uh, corporate special interests means that the voice of ordinary citizens increasingly gets drowned out. But despite all of that, I still believe that, as you said, problem solving with that term is is possible. Look, I, I worked in the Clinton White House um, at a time that you had Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich going at each other. Hmm. And of, of course, Bill Clinton ended up getting uh, impeached by that uh, Republican uh, Congress. Things things were not all honky-dory, but <laughs> they came together to balance the budget for the first time in 30 years, to build the first budget surplus uh, of any real scale for the first time since the 1820s, to create the children's health insurance program and, and um, make college more affordable for people. And so they were able to find a way to move forward. And while Washington is so much more divided, as, as you said, there's still times where people are able to come together. We've seen it, frankly, over the past couple of years. Uh, we saw it with the, with the infrastructure bill, where Democrats and, and, and many Republicans came together. Uh, with the CHIPS Act, uh, which is such a big uh, economic engine for Arizona's future, uh, where you had Republican Governor Doug Ducey uh, leading the charge, saying this is important for Arizona's future and Democrats and Republicans in Congress uh, coming together to vote for it, for the PACT Act uh, to provide additional veterans benefits uh, for those uh, that were facing the brunt of um, a lot of the chemicals that they were exposed to uh, in Iraq. So we've seen that progress is possible. And I think the way that you build progress is not trying to find some mythical middle uh, between two bad ideas, uh, but instead saying, how can we move an agenda forward? How can we look at what we need for the future and building consensus uh, that breaks out of some of these partisan uh, examples of trench warfare? Andre, you're still a, a young man. Um, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're not as young as you were in the Clinton administration, but you're still a young yeah, man. Exactly. 30 and, years uh, ago. There's been discussion of so much of the leadership in this country at the highest levels are people who are octogenarians or close to it, you know, without dabbling in ageism, which we're not going to do because most right. of these people are still extremely capable people. Yeah. Uh, how important is it to start building more of a next generation for people to be the leaders. I mean, that's part of what was successful about Bill Clinton, maybe in the early 90s, yeah. that he was represented a non-World War II generation. I think that's right. As a baby boomer, I think it was what was successful about uh, Barack Obama representing a, a, another generation. A and you're right. Uh, there's, uh, uh, on in both parties, uh, a lot of that leadership uh, is, um, is multiple generations uh, older. And of course, hopefully there's some wisdom that comes with that. To me, it's less the age of the person and more the age of the ideas. And I think the need for new generation of leadership to step up is less around what their age is on a calendar, but really people who have come of age in the information age, uh, who have come of age uh, and built uh, thinking uh, in 
a post 9-11 world, the types of answers that made sense for our economy, uh, for our national security in the 1930s or 1940s or 1960s, or, or frankly, even 1990s, no longer apply uh, now in the 2020s. We're living in a very, very different world. The threats that we're facing uh, externally are threats like climate change. And the threats that we're facing internally are ones that are, again, very different, whether it comes to protecting our democracy or whether it comes to uh, the breakdown of the ladder of opportunity uh, that looks very different for people in 2020 than it did uh, when I was born in the 1970s. And so I really think it's, it's about how do we have a new generation of ideas brought forward by a new generation of leaders. Well, certainly when you bring up climate change, that is an issue that gets some discussion, but not as much as people would hope because it ends up turning into something partisan. How does that revolve around all the issues that people are concerned about, the economy generally, education, immigration? I, th I think they're all really interconnected. Uh, when you think about the climate crisis, it presents a clear and present danger to Arizona's future. Uh, we're seeing it play out. We're seeing it play out in, in the news and the headlines around water and drought. Uh, we're, we're experiencing it uh, as temperatures uh, are rising uh, and creeping up year after year. And you play that out over the next 20 years and Arizona looks like a very, very different place. And that magnet for people from all over the country and the world looks very different with that kind of future continuing. By the same token, we are going through the largest, fastest shift in human behavior in our history as we're moving to a clean energy, renewable energy economy. And that is playing out in real time. And we're seeing that whether it's in cars or electricity, so many different aspects of, of our lives. And Arizona can benefit from that perhaps more than any other place in America. Uh, when you combine our strength with the semiconductor industry. And, and that's why I think something like the CHIPS Act is so important to our future. And then when you combine that with our clean energy infrastructure, Arizona really can be the solar state. Uh, we can be a source of not just energy for ourselves and people all over the United States, but create thousands of good paying jobs. We're already seeing those jobs come to Arizona uh, just since the pass of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act last fall, and that's just going to accelerate. And so it really is a tipping point for Arizona, and we have two very distinct roads we can go down. You mentioned Doug Ducey earlier. You were the nominee for state <laughs> treasurer on the Democratic side and lost to Doug Ducey at the time. Thanks for reminding me. Well, you know, that's part of what we do here. Um, <laughs> but not to bring it up in a negative way, but to say that, I mean, obviously, you've grown as a human being over the course of that time. Have you changed as a political candidate? Do you think you need to? Is there something that you learned from that that you're going to bring into this race? Yeah, I, I ran that race. And then I, as you said, I was state Democratic Party chair. And then I uh, narrowly lost in, in the primary to a uh, uh, Yes. To then Democrat Kirsten Cinema <laughs> uh, for for Congress, um, so just reminding you of of, of all uh, of all my other sundry experiences there. Yes. Um, look, I think we always grow and change. Uh, I've spent the t past ten years 
having stepped away really from day-to-day politics, helping others uh, uh, here in Arizona, you know, still certainly very involved in our community and in my kids' schools and so on, but but not in the political role and working in the private sector. And, um, you know, having been a CEO, having built a company, uh, having created a alternative to the big banks that helped people have uh, bank accounts that didn't have unfair fees, that helped them make sure that their deposits are fossil fuel free, firearm free, uh, as opposed to what the big banks do with your money. Those sets of experiences, um, I think, just add to my ability to not only communicate my vision, but to have a more nuanced understanding of what it takes to uh, run an organization, what it takes to run a business. And I think every experience that you get in life adds another layer. Um, And so certainly, uh, I think there's all kinds of ways in which hopefully I've grown and, uh, and uh, hopefully I continue to grow wiser uh, as the years go on. Is this something that you felt compelled to do? And at the same time, you're also pretty excited about doing it. I am excited about doing it. Uh, you know, look, I'll, I'll admit it was not an easy decision uh, for me to to do it. I, I really wanted to think about whether I could really make an impact in today's Congress or was um, was it really just about nonstop partisan warfare, uh, which which was less appealing to me as a way to spend my time. And of course, you know, being a father and having two kids in school, uh, thinking about all those challenges. Um, but honestly, I, I am excited. Uh, I think this is such an important moment going back to where we started. And, you know, a, a few days after I uh, announced, uh, had a, a pre-planned trip with my son and we went to Alabama and visit a few places, including Selma. And, you know, I've always thought to myself, what would I do in those kinds of moments? Uh, Would I have shown up uh, at Selma? Would I have been supportive actively of what was going on there? Would I have stood by and, uh, and, and watched and, uh, and not uh, jumped in with both feet. Uh, And you can give so many other examples of these moments in our history. I think we're in one of those moments. I think, you know, if you wonder what would you have done at uh, the time of of Selma or of Stonewall or of Seneca Falls or the abolitionist movement, if you wonder what you have done, it's whatever you're doing right now. And I feel blessed to be able to say, yeah, I'm stepping forward and I'm excited about hopefully bringing a, a new uh, direction to Arizona District 1, uh, new leadership for Arizona and and a set of new ideas that can not only make Arizona better, but hopefully help our country as well. That is Andre Cherney, one of the new candidates in Arizona's first congressional district, running on the Democratic side, former chair of the state Democratic Party, former CEO, former speechwriter in the Clinton White House. Andre, thanks so much for the conversation. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me and and, uh, excited about this new podcast. And now it's time for the segment we're calling It's Not Personal. It's politics. Ah! Andre Cherney is one of a few Democrats who've already announced a run to challenge incumbent Congressman David Schweikert. 
and there may be more. Schweikert beat his Democratic opponent Jevin Hodge by less than one point in 2022, in a year that turned out better for Democrats than expected. If conventional wisdom wins out, a presidential election year, as 2024 will be, gives Democrats a better chance of making gains and picking up seats. But Schweikert knows how to win elections. Unlike his more rightward Trump-supporting colleagues in Arizona's delegation, Andy Biggs, Paul Gosar, and Debbie Lesko, Schweikert's seat has not been a lockdown guaranteed spot for the GOP. From having to beat fellow Republican House member Ben Quayle when redistricting pitted them against each other in a primary, to having to run with a House ethics punishment saddled to him, Schweikert is still in office. Whether he's been able to achieve that success because of party affiliation, or messaging, or timing, or his own political talent and savvy, the results are the same. Schweikert wins. Attempts to portray him as a Trump toady or an out-of-touch conservative may have moved a certain percentage of voters against him, but the aforementioned ethics punishment, dished out by a bipartisan panel, didn't stain Schweikert enough for him to lose. Do many voters not care about that? Did it seem like politics as usual, and thus not move the needle? Schweikert wants to be seen as an issues-focused politician who talks about budgets and deficits instead of the blood pressure raising cultural wedge issues. That can frustrate conservative true believers, but can also make it harder to fire up the opposition or fence-sitting independents. The Democratic nominee will have to be realistic about Schweikert's skill and elective success and actually prove to voters that he or she will help solve the problems that Schweikert can't or won't while not coming across as a fired-up zealot. The key word, though it's not sexy in politics, may be pragmatism, a concept attractive to a lot of that small percentage of voters who may be persuaded to listen to what the candidates have to say before deciding who will earn their vote. Episode number one of AZ Politicast is in the books. Thanks to Andre Cherney for being with me on this inaugural edition of the AZ Politicast podcast, and I appreciate that you took the time to listen. So now, please subscribe, rate, and review, and let everyone you know about AZ Politicast wherever they live. It's available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and please send me your comments and questions, guest suggestions. You can even suggest yourself. And the email address is azpoliticast at gmail.com. That's azpoliticast at gmail.com. Music for this podcast is from Epidemic Sound. I'm Steve Goldstein. Thanks for listening to AZ Politicast. Mm-hmm.